Welcome to Culture Camp. On today's episode, the second of two shorter bonus episodes, we all discuss Amazon Prime's new series, The Wheel of Time. I get to indulge in a nerdier discussion of the series, Sean paraphrases Pink Floyd's The Wall, and Gavin tells us how Jimmy Carter was irradiated. Email us at culturecamp.cast at gmail.com to send us comments, questions, and topic ideas. That's K-U-L-T-U-R-E-K-A-M-P dot cast at gmail.com. And follow us on Twitter at CultureCampCast and follow us on Spotify. All right, so we talked about Dune and now the other two guys here on the panel, Gavin and Tom, they want to talk about uh, a series which we have at least, or at least uh, Tom and I have recently become re-intimately familiar with, uh, that is Wheel of Time. So I've only watched the show, the new Amazon Prime TV show. Both Gavin and Tom have read the books. Gavin has not seen the show. Tom has watched the show. And indeed, whenever I'm watching the show, uh, I often open up (laughs) my messenger and I'm uh, sitting there like live asking him lore questions just because... I'm enthralled by the universe, but I'm also too lazy and partially too busy to actually go and read the books. So uh, we, you know, we go and we have lunch and uh, both of these guys inundate me with Wheel of Time lore. So Tom's very passionate about it. He obviously has some has some opinions about the discrepancies between the show and the book. I opted to do the intro for this simply because I am brand new to the show and I will give a normie's introduction to it. Uh, this is a universe that is based apparently on cyclical time. What has happened will happen again. Uh, people have access to magic, and as far as I can tell, there's like one source of magic, and women can access it. Apparently men can too, but apparently whenever they do it drives them insane and they become the Antichrist. And so we live in a time in which this cabal of sorceresses, who so far I don't really like, uh, spend most of their time hunting down this reborn magician, who they're calling the Dragon Reborn, to prevent this end of the world from happening. And so it kind of begins us off as all good epics in Medius Res, and uh, there is a woman named Moraine, who is from something called the Blue Aja. It's like that, I don't know, it's like the, the, the FBI informant agency of this sorceress group. And they find themselves in a village far off in the mountains, looking for four children who they believe, well, they're not really children, they're really teens, who they believe have a chance of being the last dragon, and they want to find out who they are so they can prevent this sort of terrible end of the world. It sounds very confusing. It's actually very entertaining. I have things that I like about the show. I have things that I dislike about the show, but the things I dislike about the show are about the show in itself. It's not about discrepancies in the book uh, from the book because I haven't actually read the books. But I will hand over the discussion for the media part of the show or for the media part of wheel of time to Gavin and Tom. And I will occasionally interject about the show. Thank you for that, Sean. Um, Before we get going, I want to make it clear. My objections and displeasure with the show are not, you know, because they've tried to do an adaptation of book to film. I understand that you can never do a perfect recreation, you know, page for page, word for word. Um, and we've already seen what basically a perfect adaptation is in Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings. That's not this. That's not the source of my criticism. 
instead the single biggest source of criticism I have is in cheapening the character arc of one of the major characters, Nynaeve Almira. And I'm, I'll go ahead and say right now, spoilers ahead, so if you haven't watched the show, haven't read the book, and you want to you know, experience it for the first time, maybe watch the show before listening to this episode. Well, I mean, the book came out in when? Well, the first book came out in 1990, yeah. So it's kind of on you. May as well be as old as the Bible then. <laughs> in pop culture terms, absolutely. Um, but I think it's important to discuss that in the books, there's a character named Nynaeve Almira. She is the wisdom of Amon's Field. And that basically means she is the village healer. She is the weather forecaster. She is a, a disciplinarian. She, she acts as an advisor to the informal women's council of the village. She's a living embodiment of wisdom. Well, yes. Like, yeah. Oh, so I, I, I mean, wasn't really clear on what the role of wisdom <laughs> she, was. She is. She is supposed to be the kind of not quite grandmother to the entire village because she's too young. And in the book, she's criticized for being too young and people think she's too young for the job. But she, again, she acts as the informal advisor. Um, and in the show, we get a little bit of that uh, because there's a introductory scene where she seems to be speaking for the, the women's council, but that's basically all we get. Mm -hmm. uh, all right. So village witch got it. Yeah, Village Witch. But they like her, mostly. Yeah. In the show, uh, to summarize the first three episodes, Village is attacked by evil army of monsters, and the heroes of the show have to leave because they are convinced by the character Mor Moraine that the monsters are after these four characters, Randall Thor, Perrin Ibarra, Matt Coffin, and Egwene Alvere. And if they leave the village, the monsters will follow them. Makes sense. Well, they leave the village, and they are, f they are in fact, followed by these monsters, which are called Trollocs, um, that are kind of a... That me meanie monster TN. Yes, yes. Um, so it, during the attack, Nynaeve is actually taken by one of the Trollocs, and that's the last we see of her until the third episode of the show. Uh in between this, you know, the first episode and the third episode, we are treated to the main cast of Moraine, her waterland, and then the four two village and then the four two rivers uh, villagers trying to escape and going to a ruined city known as Shadar Logoth. Bad things happen, and Moraine is injured. The four villagers are separated. Is that, the, is that the spooky city? That is the spooky city. Okay, that was based. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so the, everybody is separated, and anyone who's played Dungeons & Dragons knows you don't split the party. True. Um, so Rand and Matt go there, go one direction. Egwene and Perrin go another. Lan and uh, Moraine, who is now injured, are kind of waiting outside the city thinking they've failed. And to a certain extent, they're not wrong. At which point, Nynaeve shows up, pulls a sword on Lan, and threatens him. This doesn't happen in the books. And as I said before, this is not a criticism, uh, this is not me criticizing, you know, adaptational choices. This is a major departure from the character, however, because Nynaeve is competent in the book. She, 
she has a position of respect and she's earned that. But what she hasn't earned is what they give her in the show. We're shown in a flashback that she kills the Trolloc by stabbing it in the back and then she tracks everybody down. She's very combative. She's very warlike when she rejoins the group. To a certain extent, what they've done is they have masculinized a character who is supposed to be very feminine, and the entire point of this, the books, in fact, is to show that while different, men and women are co-equal in power and authority, and the femininity is a power in and of itself. Yeah, that's what really bothered me about your description of this from the show, is that insofar as Nynaeve has to pull a sword on somebody, um, it really undermines the theme. Nynaeve is not a character who needs to pull a sword on somebody in order to be respected. No, she browbeats them. Yeah, she, she <laughs> browbeats them. That's true, but, but, yeah, so, you know, within the, within the, the series, the, the power is divided into masculine and feminine halves, the power that drives the wheel of time that runs reality. And so male and female, you know, these, these wizards, basically, channelers can channel the different sides of the source the reason men go insane is because the male side has been t basically tainted by the devil uh, and for, for some time. And uh, thematically, one of the big parts of the book is the, I mean, really just the, like it's in the, literally in the fact that the true power is, that this true source is uh, divided into male and female halves that are co-equal is echoed in the book's treatment of, of men versus women in that they are co-equal in society and constructs a number of different societies with institutions that allow women and men to exercise uh, similar levels of power but in ways that are uniquely feminine or uniquely masculine, right? And for Nynaeve to take on a role, now, like, I, I don't want to be misunderstood. I'm not saying that women can't fight, right? Uh, I think women have a an average propensity to engage in physical violence that is lower than men, and I think men are a little bit uh, better designed for physical violence uh, in most contexts, which is why we're bigger. Well, there are other ca female but characters in sci-fi particularly that who are very, very strong, very competent, and mm -hmm. are fighters. I mean, yeah. Sarah Connor from Terminator. Right, right. Ellen Ripley but, from Alien. Cara Dune and Bounty Hunter, I mean, explicitly combat-oriented women. Yes. Or Mandalorian, sorry. Yeah. And, and I, I know lots of women who are uh, very excellent fighters myself. Uh, but since we're dealing with uh, the vocations that are usually feminine or usually masculine, when we're, we're looking at something that's thematically masculine versus feminine, like this, this book series and the show so explicitly is, then when you do make her fight, you are having her use something through the ma from the masculine domain to project her power when the entire point of the novels is that her femininity is itself powerful. And I really have a serious problem with that because I really, in, I mean, I do think that femininity is as powerful as masculinity. I think that masculinity and femininity uh, are co-equal in a way that, that the the books originally captured, and I think that uh, it, our society sometimes does have a lot of disrespect for femininity. I think that that happens in a lot of ways that that uh, are different from from the way some people claim. I think that there there are some people who uh, 
devalue femininity specifically because they see masculinity as more powerful and as a result of that want women to behave in a more masculine fashion and i'm certainly not for that oh in which they end up becoming not better women but ersatz men yeah and so that that's really the problem that i had with that is that the character shouldn't require that and it's contrary to the themes of the series well and to kind of go back i want to i want to make it clear in the books she is shown to be very capable mm-hmm. see when the when Moraine and Lan take the uh, the villagers with them, they are explicitly hiding their tracks. They are they are acting in such a way to as to evade the Trollocs, and they make mention multiple times that it would be very difficult to follow them. In the book, when Nynaeve finally catches up to them, she earns praise from Lan because he didn't think it would be possible for anyone to follow them, and that shows right there. Oh, here's a capable character who has a skill set that yes. is going to be valuable, and she learned it over time. And it's a realistic skill set for a um, a character like a wisdom who lives in a small town like that to possess. Well, especially given that, according to the, you know the backstory, um, her father was a uh, he was a sheep herder, but he also did hunting at the time and basically provided for his family. So he would have to possess these skills, mm-hmm. and as the only child of this family, she would obviously take on some of those skills because how else, what else is he going to do? Not pass on what he knows. So the, that's in stark contrast to her threatening Lan with a sword, right? Because Lan is a uh, warder, a legendary professional soldier and professional warrior, right? And uh, she knows this about him. So why would it ever be threatening for her to pull a sword on him if there's no realistic reason for her to have any swordsmanship capabilities at least that he knows about right maybe they're going to change the character so that she she has that in her past but there's nobody in Eamon's field where she's from that would have taught her that and so it's her making an impotent gesture to try and signal her toughness to the audience but it is an empty gesture because there's no reason to think that she could ever defeat Lan uh, in a sword fight there's no character uh in the series, I mean, there's 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 another character who is secretly a, a sword master, but outside of that, you wouldn't expect anybody to be able to fight him. Right. Um, and this kind of goes back to my chief complaint. It's cheapening this character arc. Um, and, and you see it in a lot of recent pop culture. The most blatant one I can think of is Captain Marvel, this very powerful, very competent, um, kind of aloof character who is basically set up to be a feminist archetype and kind of is has all this unearned ability that we never there's no struggle for anything it's the mary sueism that is so prevalent in unskilled fiction yeah characters like so Nynaeve at the beginning of the series is a very impressive character and I'm, I'm talking about the books here she is a very impressive character she holds a place of of respect within the the society where she lives and she has a lot of very impressive skills but she's not godlike not but yet by the end of the series she is and it's realistic the arc she went through to earn that just like the other characters that we saw like Egwene and and Rand all end up with impressive powers and large numbers of followers and different things like that, but they earn that through the, the struggle and almost dying and receiving things that are legendary through, you know, more or less quests and things, which is a staple of high fantasy. So to kind of go with that, 
Um, there are, there's some things that happen throughout the story. Characters who have the ability to touch magic and are cut off either as penance for uh, crimes committed or because their ability to touch magic represents a grave and existential threat. Um, male channelers who use this ability, who are going insane, who threaten the stability of kingdoms, and female channelers, Aes Sedai, who are basically kicked out of the order and are, and are stilled, as, to use the term from the book, as a punishment. At stilled. certain point, yes, stilled. They're, they use different terms. So men, male channelers, are gentled, which... Sounds like castration. Are, yeah. you, are you magically castrating them? Is that what Basically. Is? Yeah. Okay. They lose the will to live as a result of it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's magical it's, it's castration. It's basically slow execution. Um, and then female channelers who also lose the will to live are, are, base, are what's called stilled. Over the course of the story, there's a civil war within the Aes Sedai, and Nynaeve joins the rebels. And after much struggle, much study, and a lot of hard work, she figures out how to heal these conditions. Which, according to every, all of the information in the lore, is supposed to be impossible. Every other character is absolutely amazed when she does this. It's not supposed to be possible. This is a permanent solution to an existential problem, particularly with gentled men. But she figures it out. Right. And not only does she figure this out, she does this to a false dragon who was responsible for wars and you know massacres. And it causes a huge problem. But she does it so that he can be present and fight at the last battle, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I do think it creates some, some serious problems with her character uh, to, to have that done. And I think it shows... I mean, it is difficult to convey in a show that, that characters are strong in a way that it's less difficult when writing. But I don't think that it was worth it in this case. No. I mean, and there, I know for a fact that there are good ways to do this. I, not to uh, not to get off track, we'll return real quick, but I just got done watching the second season of The Witcher. Spoilers ahead, sorry. Uh, but they have, there's a there's a female character in there who, uh, named Ciri, who gets introduced to Geralt, The Witcher, and they end up at Kaer uh, Morhen, and she has to be, and, or, and he takes to training her. And I was very afraid whenever the training scene began, because, like, they go through all this, like, uh, Ciri and Geralt are being hunted by all these various factions throughout the continent. And they finally end up at Caremorn, where they train and make witchers. And uh, you finally get it. Some of the witchers decide, well, we need to train her how to fight. And they ta and witcher training is notoriously cruel, because they're these, like, combat-oriented monster hunters. And as soon as the scene starts, you see Ciri st standing in front of, like, these swinging bullets and all these, like, spite chains and stuff. And I was afraid they were going to do basically what they did with, like, Rey in Star Wars and so, mu so much other modern fiction I've seen, where she just finesses all of it. And much to my surprise, she runs across the beam and the first bullet beats her and she coughs up blood and she's just, the witches are sitting there watching and she's like determined and she gets up, she goes across, she keeps getting her ass kicked. And over time, she actually becomes better over like a course of months and surpasses and actually becomes a stronger warrior. That made me happy and I much prefer, I became more attached to her character by seeing her yeah. go through that well, process, as well, opposed to this Nineveh thing, which just seemed yeah. Well, trite. And, and I'll say this too: when you have something, when you have a phenomenon like the the Mary Sue phenomenon, where you have characters that are just good at things for no reason, not characters who have natural endowments of talent, 
right? But characters who are just instantly good and don't have serious flaws, that kind of thing, you're really being cruel to your viewers, especially to your young viewers, right? Because nothing is that easy to do. Nothing at all. I have seen a large number of people try martial arts for the first time, right? Learn to box for the first time. I have video of myself boxing in the first three months that I started doing uh, kickboxing, and I look like uh, just a complete incompetent because I had no idea how to do it. People, it, it, it's difficult. It's difficult to learn any skill, and it's just really kind of sick to, to put that sort of thing out there and attempt to tell people that they're, that they're, you know, it's almost like the art is trying to reflect the intrinsic worth in every human being by showing the external worth of one human being who's capable of doing a lot of things. But it's not a good idea to try and give people a sense of their intrinsic worth by showing them something that has to do with, with like extrinsic worth like that because it is so difficult to gain the, the latter kind of worth. Well, well I'm, I mentioned Sarah Connor from the Terminator series earlier. In the first movie, and this is a perfect example of kind of what you mentioned, Sean, with the training that we don't actually see over the course, over, between the first and second movie, but we see the results of it. In the first movie, she is very much a damsel in distress. Uh, she has to be rescued. She, we see the beginning of her training uh, at the hands of Kyle Reese, and eventually Kyle Reese has to sacrifice himself to defeat the first Terminator, and then we have a time skip forward to Terminator 2, where she has gone completely off the rails. Like she is, she's gone and like dated Green Berets deliberately just so they could train exactly. her she, son. She has lost her humanity in the search for power and strength. And part of the big arc of Terminator 2 is her rediscovering her humanity. Uh, and we see this when she tries to kill Miles Dyson, the uh, head of Cyberdyne Systems, who is in this time stream responsible for the creation of the of, of skynet and by extension the terminator uh th and that's the thing is that what this does what the naive does in uh the show at least is it shows preference for a political image over teaching a lesson about reality probably i would say in regards to everything we've been talking about the lesson of reality which is that good things are come by through suffering. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, you know, you don't get your, you don't get your pudding if you haven't had your meat. Yeah. <laughs> and a real serious effort. And so you've, what you've done is substituted a, uh, a political image, um, for the, the image of the actual journey that people need to take. Right. And that's, that's a, and a, you know, like the hero's journey, right. It's been repeated so many times that it's almost trite. But that really exists for every person in, in becoming a competent, self-actualized human being who can deal with the, the truths of reality and the difficulties of, of, of reality. And when you substitute something effortless for that, I, it, it teaches the wrong thing. And it teaches, uh, you know, again, this... So, it teaches this political image as if self-belief could just effortlessly self-actualize the person, right? It's very postmodern, and it is a, a it creates people who are uh, want to see what is a simulacrum of competence because the competence has none of the history that actually is 
is associated with normal competence. In an age where one of the most best-selling books of all time was The Secret. Oh, yeah. God. Oh, dear. I, I, I just uh, Spoiler alert, The Secret, since we're doing spoilers, The Secret is positive thinking. And it's that's very much an ethos for the age. I, re- mm-hmm. I really it's agree with that, Wishing makes Gavin. things happen. Well, and it's, it's <laughs> substituting a childish ethos for a, a real ethos. Because what's something like The Wheel of Time is... So I'm not going to... I love The Wheel of Time. Uh, you know, I read it starting when I was a teenager, and I finished it up when I was an adult. Uh, there's one book in the middle of the series that you can skip entirely and not, like, actually miss anything. Everybody knows what I'm talking about. Uh, no, please. Uh, no, it's just there's one book that, that, you know, the middle book of any series is going to be difficult. The middle book of a 14-book series is going to be... Uh, you know, difficult in the sense that there are going to be so many plot points and things that just need to be cleared up. Like, nothing happens. The book takes place over four days. Uh, famously, you can read the Wikipedia article of this book and get the same amount out of the series. Well, it's, not a, it's not a diss on Robert Jordan, but, but, but what this series is, is that this, this is a, it's, it's a series that's really um, a, a high fantasy heroic series. And when you... And the main consumers of that those series are, in fact, young men. I'm not saying other people don't enjoy them. I'm not judging you if you're not a young man and you enjoy them. But uh, they, they kind of point the way from childhood to adulthood, right? And when you corrupt that journey by making somebody a, a Mary Sue or by corrupting, corrupting that journey in that way, then it just it, it, it corrupts... Uh, the, the guide to reality that the, the book series is supposed to be. I think my favorite part of The Wheel of Time, or, or one of my very favorite parts, is in the final book. This is a huge spoiler, but when, when the, the main character finally ends up fighting the devil, right? Uh, he get, receives several visions, and one of the vision, some of the visions are visions of uh, what happens if, if the devil wins, and they're horrifying. But he also receives an image of what happens if he manages to kill the devil for all time. And the world that he's shown seems at first like a paradise, except that everyone in it is infantilized, completely infantilized. All they can talk about is how they've invented lots of great new children's games, and they all love playing games with the children because the people, they don't have any moral agency because they can't choose evil anymore. They can't be evil. And so the only thing that exists is an eternal childhood. And I think that when you create something like a character who doesn't have to work for any of their ability, what you are creating is a, is a, a childhood fantasy. You're creating an image of pure imagination, but it's, it's you know, an immature imagination of, uh, you know, an eight-year-old playing like they're Superman, right? And so it's exactly like you're creating a, a simulacrum from people of that uh, eternal childhood that, that exists without the devil because you're not showing them the effort that goes into being somebody who can deal with the actual evils of the world and, and real moral agency. This is one thing that I think... J.K. Rowling got right. And controversy alert, J.K. Rowling is kind of persona non grata on the internet right now, if you didn't know. But she kind of got it right with the Harry Potter series in that at no point are we ever given any idea that Harry himself is in any way the most competent character. He's kind of getting by I on always felt he was kind of useless. I didn't know why he was... A, the, I never read the books. I didn't know why... 
Like, the series is named after him, but I really didn't know why he was there. A more accurate title for the series would be Harry Potter, who survives because he gets extremely lucky and surrounds himself with talented people. (laughs) Hermione Granger is ten times smarter than him. Yeah. (laughs) Well, you know, that's like in in the first book when he's 11 years old, you don't expect him to be omnicompetent, and he isn't. The only reason he survives his encounter with Voldemort in there is because because of his parents' love, which is a great theme for a, a story about an 11-year-old. Exactly. Because, because, and it is, but he does become a more adventurous, capable person throughout it, in part because he forms friendships. Because you've got to be your own self-actualized person, but what you're able to do in life is also going to depend on your relationships with other human beings, because humans are social animals. Right? And but, I, I, but, but his parents' love, like... Quirrell tries to grab him, and his parents' love literally melts Quirrell. It's really great. Like, what, like, what, like the Ark of the Covenant? Kind of, kind of. So, yeah, like every time he tries to grab him, his arms turn to ash and things like that. Yeah. Yeah, in, in the books, and I don't know why I remember this, I read them as a child, but in the books, he basically is burned alive because he, he is anathema to the touch of, of Harry Potter because of some deep ancient magic or something that I'm sure makes sense to people who spend lots of times on or lots of time on internet message boards and write about right. this stuff. Yeah, I mean but you, you can you can come up with deep lore reasons for it, but basically what it boils down to is Harry's parents loved him in an, in just an immense way and they're willing to they're sacrificing their lives to try and protect him, basically consecrated him in a way that, that Voldemort can't touch him. So Voldemort got melted the first time because of, of Harry's parents, and then it, it, Voldemort's like, "Oh, now I'm gonna get, take my revenge," and he just gets melted again. So, by the way, this whole thing, this whole theme of like, oh, you can have a good storytelling where the protagonist isn't a Mary Sue or an absolute raging Giga Chad. Indeed, it's kind of pr- counterproductive to having a good story to have a protagonist who can automatically do anything, and it's controversial atim- uh, opinion time. This is why I don't like Superman. It's not pure. It's not because a lot of people will sit there and go like, "Oh, you don't like like Ray or Captain Marvel because they're females." First of all, I don't like Captain Marvel because I think the Marvel universe is you stupid. hate all of Marvel. I hate all of Marvel. So there. <laughs> now I really, really hate Superman. I always before superheroes ever got good, I felt like I was alone. I was just one of these kids who was just like, I, I think it's Superman too. Uh, he flies around the earth so fast he 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 violates relativity and turns time back so like what's your superpower oh you're god well then what's the what that's not a superhero story that's a myth that's a god story well and i'll say that superhero stories i think can be a little different from what we're talking about with the wheel of time for the simple reason that that a lot of times they start out with this uh, character who who is not going through this archetypal journey, right? That's the problem with with making Nynaeve uh, or making something in Star Wars, kind of li- the main character in one of these things, like Superman or like a a fully developed um, superhero who's already been pre-established. Is that the, their entire struggle is supposed to be, or Harry Potter's the same way, coming up from childhood into adulthood, and if your story is coming up from childhood to adulthood. But you, as a child, start out with every single conceivable power that you're you need. Already grown. You're already there grown, no but there's none of the effort that it takes to become an adult, and uh, that's a pretty bad message to send to kids. I don't want to sound like Tipper Gore here, <laughs> right? But well, that's uh, the thing is because maybe at some point, whenever you see that in a story, one of the things you start noticing, especially about like the more political-minded messaging, 
is that you're saying like, oh, that's a bad message to send to kids. But the people writing those stories aren't sending messages to kids. They're sending validation to other adults like them. Yeah. This is a new kind. It's it's dressed up as kids because there's been this extension of childhood and people wanting to live in the trappings of their childhood. But it's really less messages to kids on how to grow up well. And it's messages of validation to other adults for the postmodern, post-industrial condition in which we find ourselves. Well, it's one of the most disgusting things I've ever seen to go along with that. The kind of infantilization, the perpetual infantilization of adults in today's society is... Uh, before the infamous uh, Secret Service biting incident, there was a Twitter account that was supposed to be Champ and Major Biden, and they talked cutesy, petsy things. Well, but with... that's a parody account. I know it was a parody, but the fact that people were responding to it and, oh, this is so great, this is wonderful, we love this, like, no. You shouldn't, you shouldn't, like... You but... shouldn't want this sort of communication... I mean, it's Dude, the the president has the nuclear launch codes, uh, so the fact that he has a dog shouldn't really um, enamor him to you. Uh, Dude, I know. Oh my because, god, I know. Because because <laughs> no matter how human uh, the president is, and we've had some pre- like look, I I was uh, telling my parents the other day about how you know when Jimmy Carter was uh, what 28 years old 26 years old or something like that he was a lieutenant in the Navy and exposed himself to something like a thousand times what what the the safe dose of radiation is to to help turn off uh, a uh, malfunctioning nuclear reactor or a, one that was going to be going into meltdown in Ottawa so I'm not cl- one of those people who's going to claim that you know every single person who's ever been president is some co- or, or been president recently is a, a psychopath or a bad person but I'm going to tell you that, that once that person, however great they may be, gets into that office and has all of that power, you really can't fully trust them. And you can't let things, you know, trappings like the fact that they have a photogenic dog uh, lull you into uh, trusting them more because and they're they just be too powerful. Yeah, this a person with that kind of power, if you find them relatable, that's an op. Well, this is a part of like, <laughs> so like this, uh, the, this infantilization of the culture that gets uh, that gets sort of like slid into our cultural forms, into our shows and the things we consume. I, I won't comment as to how deliberate it may or may not be, but it's definitely happening. And it's happening because if people are more concerned about ooh-woo, the president's dog, than ooh-woo, the president's policies, that's good for the people who already control mm-hmm. all the wealth in the country. And it's, you know, it's kind of a... I, I'm still shocked. I've brought it up in previous podcasts. I'll bring it up again. But whenever I was last over in uh, England and I saw pamphlets from Wales where there was a proposition to uh, lower the voting age to 16 and like the pamphlet that it was on, it was sort of very like lurid and brightly colored with bubble letters and, and a, a garish looking terrible font. And it was talking about how like, oh, well, shouldn't children have a say like it was basically you know this sort of trite line it's this almost like bromide of children are ultimately the most sternly affected by policies of the state shouldn't they have a state uh, a say in how it's run too to which i say uh, no (laughs) and it's you see these pushes across the western world and that's because children are easy to manipulate if you can extend political power down into actual children and you can extend the the philosophical and existential childhood of modern day adults you just have easier roofs 
you have more of the mass men we've been talking about. And a great way for injecting that into the culture is by it's like it's these weird instantiations of shows and culture where it pops up. It's a saccharine representation of reality uh, in, in such a way that you're teaching people that, there is no growth. You're already good enough. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's the and I, so I went to an elementary school, and this is kind of a tangent, but it, it, I promise it relates. I but went I to an you elementary school. Ninety feet. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, but. We had this ridiculous pledge that we were supposed to say, and it begins with, I am a winner. I was born to be a winner. And what? that is a terrible thing to teach children. Children have to learn how to lose. They have to learn how to fail. Failure is one of the most important parts of growth. I mean, I know it's kind well, of a cliche, but Thomas Edison saying, I didn't invent one way to, to you know, invent a light bulb. I invented 99, or 9,999 ways not to. Uh, well, but, re- but, requisite Thomas Edison is a thief in the social of course, yeah, of course. Well, but, but 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 he has some good quotations. Oh yeah. Well, Quoted but uh, but it has to be but it has to be failure in the proper context too, right? It has and to at be the proper in the name time. Of improvement. Well, it has well, to be, it well, has to so be failure. Um, you here's can here's no. here's where I'm going with this is that like failure being a great teacher was one of the themes of uh, the Last Jedi, right? Like the the second of the new Star Wars films or yeah, in, in the new trilogy. Yeah. Um, and the problem with it in that, so, so kids have to learn how to fail so they can pick themselves up and, and, and keep going, right? And because failure is a part of learning. Uh, but the entire point of all that failure and all that learning is to become the kind of competent person who can run stressful, difficult situations. And so by the time you get to the point where you're one of the characters in um, The Last Jedi, you need to not be uh, failing in order to learn. Uh, in a way that gets ships full of people killed, uh, and the thing is, is that is that they tried to to have that theme be a big part of that movie when the people were failing in 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 stupid ways and in ways that that did result in people dying for no reason, and when they were supposed to be like major leaders of uh, of a high rank, high, highly uh, functional military organization. So a movie that. that did this right, and it was Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy. Yes. Uh, Alfred at one point speaks to young Bruce Wayne and says, why do we fall so we can learn to pick ourselves up? Yes. And throughout the course of that trilogy, that's we see Alfred, Bruce... That's, uh, his dad. Well, yes, but Alfred repeats it to him. Oh, okay. Sorry. So it's, we see it first um, when Thomas Wayne is talking to young Bruce Wayne, and then we see it again repeated later on in the series right. by Alfred. Yeah. But, but once, this, once he's been defeated by serious forces and not by his own, like... You know, in, in tennis, they talk about unforced errors, yes. which is where you mess up because you just messed up, not because somebody put you in a bad situation. And that's really the difference, is even the most competent leader, even real-world generals, make mistakes, but they have to be understandable mistakes. And they don't go, oh, well, I guess I'm just going to learn from that. It's usually pretty devastating. At least give a montage. Like, look, okay, Bruce Wayne in Dark Knight, he had a montage. He went to a ninja camp in tibet for some reason mm-hmm. and he learned how to be a ninja and there was a montage of him being a ninja and then ra's al Ghul being like your father's death wasn't your fault and then hitting him with a sword that's more than apparently what we got with Nineveh. and it's more than we got with, there's no training uh, montage as to why she's able to take mm-hmm. on I, I what i presume is one of the best swordsmen on the continent. well and sometimes there are characters who have skills that the the skill is not explicitly sh- they're not explicitly shown giving it like clearly rand althor is a good archer right but 
uh, that's a skill that you can imagine somebody who's grown up on a sheep farm in the middle of the woods having. It's, it's realistic. Because, because there's nothing to do. And, uh, or no. because you have we, to defend your sheep yeah, from wolves. Yeah, well, and no. he also doesn't get in, a, in an archery competition with the best Archers legendary in the archer in win. the world and then win. Yeah. yeah. Who um, does actually show up later on in the series, by the way. Yes. <laughs> Bridget Silverbow? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and and so, uh, yeah. So the the there are numerous examples of, of these themes being done right and these themes being done wrong that, that we can find throughout all of these uh, these different shows and these different films. But definitely the the way Nineveh was presented there uh, undermines it for for Wheel of Time. So there are positive examples of the hero's journey and hero's journey that are done well we've done a couple of these tom you mentioned sarah connor uh my favorite i think everyone's favorite is obviously ellen ripley uh from alien and aliens and alien 3 and alien resurrection but we're just talking about alien and aliens uh and then (laughs) we don't acknowledge i mentioned siri even though i haven't read the books and i haven't played much of the video games and i don't know her full story the way she's presented in the witcher i really like that well, and some of those are, are, you know, full hero's journeys, and some just have the, the characteristics, and some of them are more coming of age. Or in the, in the case of Ripley, it's, it's a female character who's already competent, but gaining uh, uh, special, special knowledge of the alien through encounters with the alien, which uh, no one really wants. Which, funny enough, is actually kind of what happens to Nynaeve in the books. I mean, she's already competent. But through trauma and struggle, she becomes even more competent and becomes kind of a hero in her own right. Yeah. Yeah. So she, she, uh, that's the story. The story is movement. And I mean the story and it's absolutely not, not wheel of time, but any story, the story, the abstraction of the story, the form of the story is movement. It's that movement forward on the edge of chaos. It's growth. Yes. And that growth is movement and movement is growth. And that, if you're already fully grown, then there is no growth, i.e. there is no story. It's, inher- it's, it's inherently anathema to the idea of storytelling. Another great example is just the Wheel of Time books. Robert Jordan created an excellent universe that has multiple heroes' journeys. None of the characters are static. All of them have realistic and difficult arcs to go through. I mean, again, spoiler alert, lots of bad stuff happens to all of these characters, and they all come out, cha- not necessarily better, but changed as a result in a believable and you know, realistic way that earns them a resolution. It earns the denouement and the climax of their story. Culture Camp is hosted by Sean and Gavin. It's recorded, produced, and edited by Tom. Our opening track is The Mountains Don't Care About You by Dr. Turtle, and our closing track is Freeze Frame by Stay Loose. You can contact us at culturecamp.cast at gmail.com. That's K-U-L-T-U-R-E-K-A-M-P dot cast at gmail.com. Be sure to follow us on Spotify and on Twitter at Culture Camp Cast, and share this episode on social media. Thanks for listening.